For as long as we have lived For as long as we have known Love has carried us You're listening to the Sermon Podcast of Genesis Covenant Church in St. Louis Park, Minnesota. You can find out more about us at www.genesiscov.org. Enjoy the teaching in it together. So a little bit of an introduction. Our beloved Dan Cook, I literally walked up to him about three seconds ago and said, can I change the translation? And he's like, sure. So the one in your papers thingies aren't the same as what I'm about to read. This is the Passion Translation. Romans 8. So then, beloved ones, the flesh has no claims on us at all. And we have no further obligation to live in obedience to it. For when you live controlled by the flesh, you're about to die. But if the life of the Spirit puts to death the corrupt ways of the flesh, we then taste God's abundant life. The mature children of God are those who are moved by the impulses of the Holy Spirit. And you did not receive the the spirit of religious duty leading you back into the fear of never being good enough. (laughs) But you have received the spirit of full acceptance, enfolding you into the family of God. You will never feel orphaned, for God rises up within us, our spirits joined in God and saying the words of tender affection, Beloved Father, For the Holy Spirit makes God's fatherhood real to us as he whispers into our innermost being, you are God's beloved child. And since we are God's true children, we qualify to share all of God's treasures, for indeed, we are heirs of God himself. And since we are joined to Christ, we also inherit all that God is, all that Jesus is, and all that God is has. We will experience being co-glorified with Christ, provided that we accept Christ's sufferings as our own. The word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. Good Good to see you all here. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, my name is Dan Cook, and I've been coming to Genesis pretty much since the beginning. Um, And I'm really excited to be up here today. This is actually the fourth time I've got to deliver a message. And I'm excited for a couple of reasons. One, I've actually grown to really enjoy doing this. Um, Public speaking is supposed to be one of those things that makes people really afraid. I heard Jerry Seinfeld, I think, did a bit that says that people's number one fear in life is public speaking. Number two is death. So if you're at a funeral, you'd rather be in the casket than given the eulogy, apparently, is the bit. Um, And it's not that I don't fear public speaking. I mean, everybody that that comes up here gets a certain amount of butterflies, right? Um, But the process of crafting a message, of coming up with an idea, and then trying to communicate something clearly and seeing if you can get it to land, that's just, I think that's a fun process. So I'm I'm enjoying doing that. Um, I'm also excited because I get a chance to say thank you to some people today. Uh, Nine months ago, I was up here speaking, and I told you all that I literally that week begun my first year at Bethel Seminary in the Master of Divinity program. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, And you were very kind to me that day. And to be honest, I sort of expected that, not because I inherently deserve it, but because that's sort of the character of Genesis, right? There is an abundance of love and support here that seems almost inexhaustible in its supply. 
and it's part of the reason that I've called this my spiritual home. Um, so I expect that. What I didn't expect is over the last nine months, and I probably should have because it comes from the same place, but over the last nine months, the overwhelming, at least to me, number of people that have come up to me, either here or out in the lobby area or wherever, and just asked, hey, man, how's school going? What classes are you taking? What are you learning? Uh, really has knocked me out. Um, trying to balance you know, a full-time job and school and some semblance of a life uh, has been a challenge over the last nine months. But knowing that I have the love and support not only of my family and my friends, but of everybody here has just been, uh, it's been huge for me. It's been very, very important. And so um, I'm not going to name names because for those of you that have checked your kids in with me out at the table, you know I'm horrible with names. I can recognize faces like nobody's business. I don't know what names to attach to them most of the time. So I don't want to leave anybody out. But those of you who have spoken to me about it and, and inquired with me about school, thank you, thank you, thank you a thousand times. Thank you. It, it's meant a lot. But I hope that those folks don't regret that decision. Because today, y'all are coming to seminary with me. <laughs> because as Steve said, today's Trinity Sunday. Um, if my friend Nick Throckmorton were here, I'd make him recite the preamble to his lectionary podcast. For those of you that are fairly new, we do follow the Revised Common Lectionary, which Nick says every time he does a podcast, is a three-year-long cycle of passages that follow the rhythms of the church calendar. The church calendar, we just had seven weeks of Eastertide, followed by uh, Pentecost last week, and now we're moving into ordinary time, which will extend until Advent, when the whole cycle starts over again. And so the Sunday after Pentecost is always Trinity Sunday, where we celebrate the doctrine of the Trinity. In order to celebrate that doctrine, I sort of think you've got to dig into what it actually says and what it really means. And to do that, it's going to sound a little bit like a classroom lecture to start with today. So for those of you that are not a school nerd like me, I apologize, but I promise we're going to get to some practical, pragmatic, sermony sounding stuff before we're done. So if you'll just give me your undivided attention for the next two to three hours, we're going to get through this okay. <laughs> and the test at the end is going to be open book, so feel free to take as many notes as you want, and we'll all get through this. Um, but before we dig in, I'd like to start with a brief prayer, if you wouldn't mind joining me. Um, Father God, we thank you for the opportunity to worship your name here together today. <clears throat> Holy Spirit, I ask that you please come, surround us, fill us, lift us up, and help us to know you better. And I pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen. Amen, amen, amen. So there are three words that I'd like you to keep in mind as we go through the message here today. And those words are mystery, community, and unity. And I tried really, really hard to find another word for either community or unity since one sort of contains the other. And it, I was afraid I was going to trip over one of the two words. But I couldn't. We're just going to go with those three words, so hang with me. Uh, but we're going to begin with mystery because I think at its heart, that's what the doctrine of the Trinity is. It's a mystery. It's a paradox. And part of the trouble with this doctrine is that it, nowhere in Scripture is it expressly laid out, which is kind of why it's hard to find a lectionary passage that directly addresses it. The four lectionary passages in, in year B, which is the year that we're in, address a human response to the Trinity, not the actual doctrine itself. Um, instead, you find, it's not that it's not biblical, it's very much biblical, but you find bits and pieces throughout the Bible, and it requires more of a systematic theology to tie those all together in, into the uh, doctrine of the Trinity. Um, so it's, it's taken a form over years through a series of creeds. Uh, many of you are familiar, obviously, with the Council of Nicaea and the Nicene Creed that affirmed Jesus' divinity. 
And then there was the Nicene Constantinopolitan, I always screw up that word, creed that affirmed the Holy Spirit's uh, divinity. And it finally kind of came together and coalesced in what's called the Athanasian Creed, which was written about 400 AD. And that says, in part, we worship one God in Trinity, and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the essence. I'll read that again. We worship one God in Trinity, and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the essence. So there you go. That's pretty clear. Uh, have a good weekend, everybody, and we'll see you next Sunday. Um, it's not clear at all. It's not clear at all. When you dig into it, what it really is getting at is that Christianity, like any monotheistic theology, affirms that there is one all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving God. Where Christianity departs from other monotheistic theologies is in affirming that that singular God appears in three persons. You hear the phrase three in one a lot, or three and one, I think is just as accurate way of putting it. And this is where the mystery comes in, because how in the world can something be three things and one thing all at the same time? We have no other experience in our lives where something does that. Now, those of you who've heard me speak before or who know me personally know I like me some science. I like logic. I like empirical thinking. I like putting something in a box and slapping a label on it and being comfortable with it. You can't do that with the doctrine of the Trinity. You just can't. And it's a very frustrating thing for somebody like me. And I know I'm not alone in that because over hundreds and hundreds of years, we've been coming up with analogies and metaphors and trying to paint a picture of how the Trinity works in a way that we can understand it. In fact, there's a lot of smart people here at Genesis, and I'm willing to bet that many of you are familiar with one of those ways, one of those metaphors, one of those allegories. So we're going to turn that into our, our all play today. For those of you who are relatively new here at Genesis, we feel the voice of the chorus is just as important, if not more important, than the voice of the solo. So let me ask, who knows what I'm talking about? One of the metaphors, one of the classic allegories for the doctrine of the Trinity. Anyone? Go ahead and shout it out. Water. That's a good one. Water exists in three phases, solid, liquid, gas. Three phases, but in each of those phases, a molecule of water is a molecule of water. It's an atom of oxygen and two atoms of hydrogen. doesn't change. Three, one. There's another one over here. I heard somebody shout out. Egg, egg is another one. Very good, Greg. Uh, you have the shell, you have the egg yolk, you have the egg white. Three parts, one egg. There you go. Any others? There's, uh, you heard, somebody said something? Yes. You don't have to raise your hand, by the way. You can just shout it out. Thank you, though. Like three matches, they're separate sides, and you put them all together, and it's one thing. I have not heard that, but that's a great one. I like that. I like that. Banana. Go ahead. Say more. There you go. Matt just solved the whole thing. Have a good day, everybody. We're good. We're good. Anybody heard the sun analogy? Big ball of burning gas gives off light and heat. Gas, light, heat, three, one. That's one. Actually, there's a video that I was dying to show you guys, but no screens. I get it. I get it. It's a very funny video, though. And in the, in the video, it, it humorously tries to point out all these different analogies and metaphors and how they all kind of come up short. But they tried a, a three-leaf clover metaphor with St. Patrick, which was fun. And the problem is all of these are heresies which I know is, a, you know, that word's been abused a lot. Heresy just literally means it's something other than the exact orthodox teaching, right? All of these metaphors and examples fall short of encompassing what the doctrine of the Trinity actually says. The water analogy, you have three different phases of water, right? And the molecule 
is the same in each. But a molecule of water cannot exist as a solid, liquid, and a gas at the same time. God can exist as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at the same time, and does. So that one falls short. The egg one falls short because it's called what's called tritheism, right? Where if you have one of the parts of the egg, you don't actually have an egg. If you see Jesus, you see the Father. You see the exact representation of God. But if you have an empty eggshell in your hand, you don't have an egg. If you have an egg yolk in your hand, you have a messy hand. <laughs> and you also don't have an egg. So they all, fall, they all fall short in some way, and it gets kind of frustrating to figure it out. But I think that's kind of the point, or the point I want to highlight. If we affirm that God is the transcendent, all-knowing, all-loving God that we believe that he is, and through our lived experience, we know that we are finite people in our understanding and in our very lives, then there kind of logically has to be things about God that we simply can't understand. Let's go back to science for a moment. Consider the universe, right? It's this unfathomably large place filled with a diverse wealth of objects, planets and stars and nebula and black holes and dark matter and a million other things. But each of those things are made up of minuscule, almost infinitesimally small particles. And our brains are wired in such a way that we understand how the big things relate to each other and work with each other. And we understand how the small particles work with each other and, and against each other. But we don't understand is why the theories that apply to the big things don't also apply to the small things and vice versa. That's the theory of everything that you might have heard with Stephen Hawking. In fact, that was the title of the movie, I think. Um, so we understand a lot of really intricate stuff, and yet there are still things we don't quite get. Augustine sort of took this whole theory to its logical extreme when he said, if you can comprehend, it is not God. Which is kind of a depressing way to put it, I think. I prefer to think of it like Richard Rohr does. When, he talked, when Richard Rohr talks about the mysteries of God, he talks about not things that we can't understand, but things that we are endlessly understanding. You know? We don't yet understand why the theories that apply to the big things don't apply to the small things. But if you ask any theoretical physicist, they'll tell you that they're working on it. And someday we're going to get there. We don't understand exactly how the doctrine of the Trinity works. Someday we're going to get there. And if you can accept that, if you can get your head around that idea, it provides an opportunity for sort of a paradigm shift. Instead of viewing the doctrine of the Trinity as a problem to be solved or a puzzle to put together, you can look at the doctrine of the Trinity as an example to be emulated. So how does that work? That works by starting with God's threeness. And this is where I want to get to the word community. There are several spots in Scripture where the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all mentioned together in the same place. I won't list them all just for sake of time, but Peter in his Pentecost sermon in Acts refers to all three, and Paul refers to them in several times in Galatians and Romans and 2 Corinthians and 2 Thessalonians and on and on and on. But I think my favorite spot, or the most obvious spot, I believe, in Scripture uh, occurs in the Gospels. And it actually, this scene occurs in all three synoptic Gospels, and John even alludes to it at a point. The Gospel of Mark, in fact, once you get past the genealogy, the very first scene is this particular scene that I'm thinking of. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Jesus' baptism. Jesus is in the Jordan being baptized by John. The heavens part. The Father's voice comes down. This is my Son with whom I'm well pleased. And the Holy Spirit descends on the Son like a dove. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, at least metaphysically, in the same place at the same time. So if Scripture affirms that God is three persons, what does that threeness have to teach us? 
Well, let's start with Genesis. In chapter 21, verse 33, uh, Genesis tells us that God is eternal. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the exact representation of God's being and that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So that means, if we say Scripture affirms that God is three persons, that God has always been three persons, God is three persons, and God will always be three persons, which means that the core of God's identity is this relational nature. God is community, in a sense. And if we also accept from Genesis that we are created in the image of God, then we are created in the image of a person who is community, who is relationship which means we are created with a need. We are created with needs that can't be satisfied in isolation. We are created to be not only in relationship with our creator, but in relationship with each other. That's a core need. Now, those of you, again, who know me very well know that I'm introverted, and I embrace that. I wore this shirt today that says, Introverts Unite Separately in Your Own Homes. And all the introverts in the crowd are nodding right now, going, yeah, yeah, no, I get that, I get that. Part of, the, uh, part of the first semester at Bethel Seminary, they have you do a spiritual formation assessment, which is a series of, of tests, and then you have to go see a psychologist, and they break down the results for you. And the very first test you have to take is Myers-Briggs. And the very first part of Myers-Briggs, it's a four-letter deal that you come up with. The very first one is either an I or an E. You're either an introvert or an extrovert. And so I go sit down with this psychologist, and she says, now, Dan, you know you're introverted, right? Yeah, Doc, I, I know I'm an introvert. I mean, I mean, you're really introverted. You know, you know that? I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, here's the scale, and here's extrovert, and here's introvert, and you're over here. <laughs> okay, I get it. I get it. But people get that confused. Being introverted doesn't mean that you don't like people. I love people. In very carefully planned and conservatively measured doses. I like people a lot. I really, <laughs> I really do. But being introverted means that being social costs you energy. It means it drains your batteries, Right? And the bigger the crowd that you have to be social with, the more your batteries get drained. And it becomes, there comes a point where you start anticipating social circumstances and you start anticipating that drained feeling and you just don't want to do it. And so you sort of, you know, duck and dodge a little bit. And so when it comes to being in community, that's a difficult balance to strike. It impacted my walk of faith uh, to a pretty large degree. When I first started as an adult coming back into a relationship with God, I was really drawn to this notion of having a personal relationship with God, right? That's a Protestant ethic we've all heard of. Now, I thought that meant that I could go to any church I want, whenever I wanted, listen to any pastor, preach any sermon, and I could listen to podcasts, and I could read books, and I could just, I'll have my relationship with God. I don't necessarily have to be rooted in a, in a community. God, being infinitely patient, didn't part the heavens and have the booming voice come down and say, dude, no, that's not how it works. Instead, he very gently nudged me along the way and got me to land here at Genesis. And when I came here and I saw that overwhelming, inexhaustible supply of love and support I referenced earlier, the light bulb went on. Oh, now I get what it means. Christianity is supposed to be done in community. We are created to be in community. Steve talked about this a little bit last week when he talked about the body of Christ and how when Christians come together as the body of Christ, it becomes more than just the sum of its parts. That's the trinity in threeness, right? When Christians come together to act for the benefit of others with the humility of Christ, and that's a key point that sometimes gets left out, when they act together for the benefit of others with the humility of Christ, amazing things can happen. That's the trinity, that's the threeness, that's the lesson of community.
It's what we're designed to do. Which brings us to God's oneness, the word unity that I talked about earlier, which is also very much affirmed in Scripture. Um, it's in the Shema in Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's in the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. It's in the New Testament. James 2.19 says, you believe that there's one God, good. And then he goes on to lecture some people. Uh, 1 Corinthians 8.4 says, there is no God but one. 1 Timothy 2.4 says, for there is one God. But if there are three persons and they're all one God, what lesson is there in that for us? I would posit that it sets an example for us of unity in diversity. So let's go back to the universe for a minute. Like I said, it's populated with a zillion different objects, planets, nebula, black holes, on and on and on and on and on. There's God, God's create, very creation is diversity. On our little planet, in our little corner of the universe, there's an enormous amount of different diverse kinds of life, from the smallest bacteria to the largest animal on the planet, the blue whale, and every shade, color, size, shape in between. Amongst God's creation, he picked one part of that creation to be created in his image. That's us. That's humanity. We are one in that. And yet we are amazingly diverse in terms of our abilities and in terms of our attitudes and in terms of our behaviors. What it means is that whatever else we are, we are all of us children of God. We are all of us created in the image of the divine. So last week I was working out with the kids so I didn't get to listen to the to the sermon live, I listened to it on podcast. And when Steve got to the point last week where he talked about the passage from Galatians, Galatians 3.28, I sort of went, uh. Because for weeks I'd been planning the sermon and, and I was going to use Galatians 3.28 in the sermon. I was like, well, I can't, can't use that now. I'm going to look like I'm copying. But I talked to him about it and he said, no, 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 what you're doing is building off of what I'm doing, so it's totally okay. So let's review that real quickly. Galatians 3.28 says, Now there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. I think part of the radical nature of this passage is that it goes completely against the grain of our lived human experience. But when you look at it through the lens of the Trinity, I think it makes complete sense. What do I mean? The Trinity, we've just said it, is the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, three distinct separate beings, all of whom are also God. That reflects this passage in us because we are Jews and Gentiles as humanity. We are slaves and free. And I mean slaves both literally because it may not, slavery may not exist in the way it did during the Civil War, but it's still very real in our world. And I mean it figuratively too, figuratively too because I think most of us would say there's something in our lives that we are slaves to that we would love to be able to put down. We are slaves and we are free. We are male and we are female. And what I loved about what you guys did last week was the modern contextualization of that same passage, right? We are LGBTQ+, and we are straight and cisgendered. We are people of color, and we are police. We are Americans, and we are Russians, and we are Chinese, and we are North Koreans, and we are Iranians, and that list just goes on and on and on. We are all of those things, and yet we are one humanity. We are one, all of us, created in the image of God. We all bear the Imago Dei. Now, that image of God may have been defaced. It may have been damaged by sin coming into the world, but it has not been destroyed, not in any of us. That's Jesus' sacrifice for us. So no matter how low any of us choose to sink ourselves in sin, we still bear, on some fundamental level, 
the image of God. And I think that's part of what Paul's driving at in this Galatians passage. That as Christians, when we see another person, we tend, as human beings, we tend to see their differences, how they are different from us. That's the first thing that pops into our head. And what Paul's saying is, no, 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 no. The first thing that you recognize about a person who may be in some other way different than you is that person is also a child of God. That person is also an image bearer of the divine. That's the first thing that we see somebody. That's the first way we judge anybody. They're a child of God. Whatever else they are, they are a child of God. So mystery, community, and unity. Those are the lessons of the doctrine of the Trinity. And that, my friends, is why when we celebrate Trinity Sunday with the only words our finite human minds can muster when we try to wrap our heads around all of this, we go back to Romans 8, verse 15. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. Amen? Amen. So we're going to enter in our usual 60 seconds of silence where we create space for the Spirit to speak to us and help us digest these mysteries, after which Katie's going to come up and lead us in the prayers of response. Holy Spirit, please come. Thank you.